Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here as always, and thanks for being with us. Can't wait to get into our interview today. We're talking with Patrick McGinnis, and his newest book is called The 10% Entrepreneur, Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job. I think Patrick has highlighted or explained better than anyone else how to become an entrepreneur. We're going to get into it a lot. I just feel like finally somebody wrote the book that most people need to read. Okay. It's not about cash in your chips, burn the boats, blah, blah. I mean, a lot of people say that. I don't know. That could be your strategy. But for the past 10, 11 years, I've been doing what Patrick really advocates for. I've learned it the hard way. And um, I've gotten to a place where, wow, you know, it, it, it worked. I didn't have to sacrifice all this crazy stuff and stress and worry. How am I going to support this? Where, you know, it just, it was a good way. So he's going to talk about that. But before we get into that, a big change in smart people podcast that I want to tell you guys about, we are now opening up our mastermind to everyone for free. Hear me out. So as many of you know, we, oh, I don't know, a couple months ago, started this mastermind and it was a core group of people. We charged a monthly fee. It wasn't a lot. We're doing webinars. We got a Facebook group. 
we were still getting it started, but had a lot of progress. And we've had two webinars. The third is upcoming, which I'll tell you about. And they were, they were incredible. They really were. I'm thinking this content is so great. It's so much fun. We're having conversations. People are getting to ask questions directly to the guests. And John and I kind of realized we don't want the fact that we're charging to hold it back from being available to all of the listeners, you know, the thousands and thousands of you out there. We want anyone who wants to be on the webinar to be able to do it, regardless of if you're just too cheap or you didn't, you know, you didn't feel like being a part of it or, you know, legitimately it's, it's not in the budget. We didn't want that to be a hindrance. And although we do need to figure out ways to really kind of support this show and support this hobby, we've decided that we're going to go with a kind of pay what you want model. Really, a, you know, if you get it, if you like it, if you, if you get value, if you've been listening for a long time or you've been binging and you feel like it's worth something to you, maybe you throw a couple bucks our way. And we're going to be using this really cool platform. It's called Patreon. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So more details to come on that once we get it set up, but just wanted to let you know. And also, thank you to those of you who joined the Mastermind. We've sent you an email. You know what's going on. We appreciate it. And really, at the end of the day, we just thought we, we got to open this thing up. We want more people in it. We want the conversation to grow larger. And so, yet again, let's offer some stuff for free. The best way, there's really two things you need to know. One you got to be signed up for the newsletter. So go to smartpeoplepodcast.com and just scroll all the way down to the bottom, bottom right. You'll see it says, want awesome stuff, subscribe to the newsletter. Go ahead and subscribe there because that's where we're going to be, you know, letting people know when we're having webinars, who's coming up, all that good stuff. Also on there, we will be sending out an invite to the Facebook group. We want to carry the conversation over there. So you can tell us from there. What do you think about guests? What's intriguing you right now? What are you confused about? What do you want to know? What happened on the webinar? What questions do you want to ask? And it's already been kind of fun to have some of that interaction. So now imagine if we get a bunch of people on there. So again, we'll be sending out invites via the newsletter. There's really no other way to do it. Okay, and what else does that mean? Well, this is where we'll be telling you about webinars. So you don't have to hear them perhaps last minute. For example, we have a webinar coming up literally tomorrow, assuming, you know, this is, this airs on Tuesday, May 3rd. We have a webinar Wednesday, May 4th at 3 p.m. Eastern time. It is going to feature David Burkus, former guest episode 233, I believe. And the webinar is going to be about how to build a great company using new rules. In the webinar, David Burkus challenges many of the long-established principles of how to build a great company. Drawing on decades of research, David has found that not only are many of our fundamental management practices wrong and misguided, but they can be downright counterproductive. You'll walk away with evidence-based strategies and real-world examples to drive performance, build stronger teams, and acquire a growth mindset, which, by the way, one of the most life-changing things, Growth Mindset. There's a book by Carol Dweck. If you haven't read it, go check it out. It's called Mindset. And David's going to talk about that in the webinar. If you get this in time and can sign up, go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Burkus. B-U-R-K-U-S. smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Burkus. 
All right. Let's get back to the topic of today. Patrick McGinnis, as I mentioned, Patrick is a venture capitalist and private equity investor who founded his own investment firm after a decade on Wall Street to provide strategic advice to investors, entrepreneurs, and fast-growing businesses. As a 10% entrepreneur himself, he's built a diverse portfolio of investments all around the globe. He's a graduate of Harvard Business School and Georgetown University, and he writes for Business Insider, Huffington Post, Forbes, and the like. I really can't recommend this interview or his book enough for anyone who thinks they want to go the entrepreneurial route. I think we've been taught a lot of things that are sensational and oftentimes just not true. Oh, and not to pitch it any harder, but Patrick is also going to be doing a webinar at some point in the future. I mean, so you're going to get to ask him a question too. Do you see where I'm going with this? It's really great stuff. Make sure to sign up for the newsletter at smartpeoplepodcast.com. So let's learn how to live our startup dream without quitting your day job as we discuss the 10% entrepreneur with Patrick McGinnis. Enjoy. All right, Patrick. Well, I know we just spent a good amount of time chatting in the intro because I'm so excited about this. I mean, exactly what you do and you talk about and you write about is what our listeners recently told us they wanted to hear about in, in a poll we took. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. So of course, we're going to be talking about your book, uh, The 10% Entrepreneur, Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job. And just by that title, people are like, okay, I'm going to focus on that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And as of the time this airs, it will have just come out. So congratulations on that. Um, But before we get into that, and sometimes people give me some grief for for doing this, but I want to know what makes you you. Um, So take us back a little bit. You know, um, wh- where did it start? Where was the beginning of this interest in entrepreneurialism for you? Sure. Well, um, I, I come from a small town in, in the state of Maine. And where I grew up, I didn't know any entrepreneurs uh, per se. I guess I knew the local sort of diner owner or the person that had the carpet cleaning service or or people that had small businesses. But I'd never been exposed to the kind of entrepreneurship that that we see nowadays with people having startups and people having all kinds of interesting, innovative companies. I saw more services and things that were inside the box. But uh, I went off to college, and when I came out, I got a job doing uh, investment banking in, in Latin America. I was really, I'm very passionate about Latin America. I lived there in college, and I worked in banking for about a year, and I just realized it wasn't for me. And so I started looking around, and my boss hooked me up with a job in the venture capital group at our uh, at our company. And I started doing venture capital in Latin America, and I started working with entrepreneurs who were not only doing really interesting businesses, but they were doing them in a place where it's very hard to be an entrepreneur. And so I was sort of operating at the I would say at the forefront or the edge of of some pretty interesting companies, whereas a company we backed back then and um, called Mercado Libre, which was sort of like the eBay of Latin America, that's gone on to become the largest internet company in Latin America, worth billions of dollars. I think last time I checked, some four to five billion. And so I I became very interested in this relationship between risk and entrepreneurship and reward as an investor. But in my own personal life, I was very happy to work inside of a big corporation. This was J.P. Morgan. And, you know, to have my sort of established life in New York with a very steady paycheck and all the things that you get when you work on Wall Street. 
And I thought I'd found kind of the perfect balance mm. doing that. You know, I'd go to work and I'd invest in these very speculative businesses and then, you know, get my paycheck from JP Morgan every two weeks or every month. And that was the plan. And I went off and did an MBA at Harvard and I came out and wanted to continue doing the same thing. And so I went, um, to another fund uh, doing emerging markets investing. And again, I was doing these investments in places like Pakistan and Turkey and Colombia, investing in growing, fast-growing, interesting companies. And I love that feeling of this very exciting work that was risky and where you, know, you never knew if there was going to be some sort of like political situation that would wipe out your investment, but within the confines of a very safe, stable uh, organization. Mm -hmm. But the problem was for me that my safe, stable organization was AIG. <laughs> Whoa. You may have, you might've heard of it. Not uh, that safe and stable. <laughs> no, I mean, it was a trillion dollar balance sheet. Uh, oh. but in 2008, I was working at AIG capital partners and all of a sudden, I mean, through no fault of my own, yeah. I found myself very exposed. Wow. So I was in commercial real estate at the time. I mean, I was doing, I was putting together conduit deals that were being put in tranches and sold and they needed ratings from, you know, AIG. <laughs> so should I blame you for this whole thing or? Yeah, honestly, honestly, uh, blame my boss, but pretty close to me. Okay. I, I remember when things went to like a, um, like a one Oh debt service coverage interest only. Yeah. And, and. We would we laughed at first because I was there from oh five to about oh nine, and uh, and then we had to because it was the only way we'd win deals. And we went, this is crazy, it's nuts, man, that's nuts. Yeah, the market, the market is you know you you can't fight the market, <laughs> and you know I sort of realized for the first time in my life I had been the you know very happy to take the safe route. You know, I again small town and. And I love this, that, that relationship of risk and reward that I had. And then for the first time I realized, you know, I totally gotten it wrong and that, you know, no matter what I had on my resume and no matter you know, what I'd done, when you're on the bank, you know, you're on the decks of the Titanic, like a great resume is not going to save you. Mm -hmm. Like you're still going down with the ship. Yep. Um, and so I had that experience and that it was very difficult. I mean, to be honest with you, it was a very difficult period for me. I kind of didn't know what to do and I was very lost and I was very let down. It sort of broke my head a little bit. I didn't really know how to think about my job. And I, for the first time, I, you know, I, I loved what I did, but for the first time, I just like, couldn't get up in the morning to go to work. I you know, sort of like show up and be mad all day and um, you know, do really passive – I did this really passive aggressive thing where like – I cleaned out my office so it looked like nobody was in it and I hid everything. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty, I mean, I had a lot of time on my hands because we weren't doing anything really. And so if you walked by my office, it looked like there was nobody sitting there. Um, so that, that's how I channeled my frustration. And, and then, you know, we just sit around and complain for hours on end about how difficult things were. And, well, see, what, like from, from your point of view, and I guess mm -hmm. for those that don't know, AIG was, I guess, was probably the biggest. Were you the biggest rating agency? Oh, insurance. It was insurance. Um, largest insurance company in the world. It was, I think, one of the top 10 largest companies in the world. Oh, that's and, right. That's right. And, okay. And we were inside of the... Um, of the investments arm, which invested all the insurance money. And so, you know, we were, we were doing really good work and, you know, we were the kind of like the very sexy division of the company that did private equity and venture capital. And oh, so, okay. you know, we were, we were, we, you know, we felt very good about ourselves to be mm -hmm. honest and felt very safe, you know, where we were in our, in our, in our offices on park Avenue. That's, that's man. 
how, like our lives were colliding at similar times. I mean, because I worked for uh, a life insurance company as well. And so pretty, you know, we're like the um, less, the least aggressive out of any, you know. And so then yes. when, when things started drying up, we just, there was, what are we supposed to do? You know what I mean? It's pretty funny. Well, that's the irony is one of my good friends once made fun of me and said, um, I, you know, I was the most risk averse person she knew. I worked at an insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So, so, so that whole experience was very, um, very educational and very transformative. Mm-hmm. And so I made a decision after all of that, that I would never again put all of my eggs in one basket and that I would never rely on one company um, for all of my, you know, my salary, my upside and all those sorts of things. And that I needed to find a way to diversify myself mm-hmm. and, and, and come up with a new way to build my career. Um, that would, would allow me to not only diversify, but create upside for myself and really figure out how to leverage all the things that I was good at and all the things I've been doing for something that would be for me rather than for, you know, a company that I worked for. I have a question on that. It always strikes me as very important. You said I needed to utilize the things I was good at. At what age did you even know what you were good at? Maybe it was early. I just, that always kind of uh, fascinates me. It's such a good question. And it's something that I always, you know, I was raised to believe, and and I think this is a good attitude, you know, your first job and your second job, you're just there to learn. Like mm-hmm. they tell you to like wash the dishes or to clean the trash out and you do it because you're there to learn and you have zero attitude and you're thankful for every, every opportunity you're given. And then at some point I remember, you know, probably after seven or eight years of work, I had this little light that went on, on in my head that, that said, you know, enough learning. Now it's time to do. Yeah, you're going to continue learning, but it's time for you to also recognize, have a little bit of a presence about what you what you know you, you're doing, and be willing to put yourself out there, take more risks professionally, and show some leadership. And I think for me, what kind of flipped the switch on that was um, coming back after graduate school and working in this firm where where I was given some autonomy and I was able to to run with some projects. And then I went to my boss and I, and I was kind of nervous about it. And I said, you know, are, are you sure you want me to do all of these things? And he basically said, go for it. Like, you're doing fine. And that gave me the confidence to step up. And, and, and once you get going on that path, I think it's kind of, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Man, another one of those goosebump moments. And the listeners know what I'm talking about. I mean, it mirrors, it mirrors like my experiences and you all of a sudden realize wait a second like i i have talent and i'm driven and i'm as good if not better than the people i would have asked to do the work and it's like a light switch and it's really gratifying and empowering it is and it also makes every day a little bit of an adventure so you know you can come to the office and you can sit in your office and you know play on your smartphone and do the minimum and all that sort of stuff but that you know five years goes by and what do you have to show for it right and so if you kind of come in i used to think of every day as like a little not a a battle because that sounds like there was somebody that i was gonna that was gonna lose (laughs) but the idea that i came in and i wanted to leave everything on the field because i knew that that my efforts were actually going to correspond to an outcome for me in terms of what I, the fun that I had, what I learned, my pay, whatever it was, the more that I saw that relationship. And I think that happened as I gained more experience, the more that I really wanted to put myself in on the field and play. So let's talk about, cause I want to get into the 10% entrepreneur. We're basically tiptoeing around it, but I want to know kind of when you made and how you made 
the switch almost, what were your like your first steps? Did you start a company? Did you start one on the side? You know, how mm-hmm. did that work? So I, it took me a long time. Hopefully people will read the book and save themselves the three to four years <laughs> it took me to figure out what the heck I was doing. Yeah. But what happened with me was I ended up leaving my old firm, but I kept them as a client and I used that as the basis of starting my own company, uh, which is, which is called Dirigo. And what Dirigo does is it's a consulting firm, an advisory firm. I have a bunch of clients that I work with. I'm a, I work with the World Bank, for example. I work as a partner with an investment bank in Brazil. I sit on some boards. And so I have this sort of stable income that allows me to live you know, as, as I'd like to live. But when I did that, what I realized early on was you know, it's great to be a consultant and it's great to get the pay and make your own schedule and do all these sorts of things. But I also realized that um, there was no upside for me anymore. So I had been working in an industry, venture capital, and where I had a base salary and then I had a, a, a percentage of the profits of my investments, what they called carried interest. And so there was upside for me if the companies I invested in did well. When, I'm, when you have a consulting firm, you just get paid you know, by your clients and then they, that's it. And you move on to the next one. But wait, you own so, the consulting firm now. That's true. It's true. It's so I get all of the payments, but you know, unless I really scale it up and someday I sell ah. the thing, it's McKinsey. Um, you know, when you're a small consulting firm, you basically are, you know, you're basically a, in, in a sense, almost like a freelancer. Absolutely. Um, makes sense. And so what I thought was, you know, that, that's great. I like the fact that I'm building something for myself. And I'd also considered going back into the corporate sector. I wasn't quite sure, but until I figured it all out, I really wanted to be able to create upside for myself through ownership, ha- really get, getting ownership in things in the way that I had before. And so I, I started looking around and talking to people and people started, you know, I, I basically put it out there you know, to a bunch of friends as I talked to them, you know, at cocktail parties or over coffee or at somebody's birthday party. I'd say, you know, I, I've, I'm really interested in getting involved in some entrepreneurial ventures. And, and one of my good friends uh, called me up and he said, I'm starting a company that has to do with YouTube celebrities. And this is 2011, by the way. So mm-hmm. it's way, it was kind of the infancy of YouTube celebrity dumb, I guess. Yeah. And, and he said, I want, I'm starting this company and I think you should help me out. And why don't you come and try to pitch some clients for me? You can do it on your own time. And you know, I'll give you some, some, some shares as an advisor. And I'll give you a, a piece of anything that you, that you kind of sell as, as, a, as a business development person. And so, you know, I had no idea. I'd never sold anything and, and, and I didn't know how to do that. And I thought it was, it was, I didn't really, you know, have the confidence, but, uh, he and I worked together. He, he took, he, he flew me down to this YouTube celebrity conference and I spent a day chasing around the guy who sings chocolate rain. Oh my God. Like, um, average age of like 18 there at that. conference. Oh yeah. <laughs> the, the big, the, like the hot act that weekend was this kid called Austin Mahomey, who's now, kind of like he's big he's a he's a big deal but at that time he was this 13 year old pimply kid with his mom and his manager gosh that's that's otherworldly by the way it was it was it was it was wild yeah. and but it was cool to to see that experience and to have to we were trying to sign up celebrities so i was running around this convention center talking to these kids who were you know had a hundred thousand YouTube followers and who really some of them like thought I was like this old weird you know guy <laughs> because I was older than thirty. And so it was, it was awkward, but I pushed myself out of my comfort zone and we ended up doing a bunch of business with some real clients and, and we did, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of sales of these. We basically were doing these promotions where YouTube celebrities would promote products from big brands. Uh-huh. 
And so we did it. And, and it was a great experience for me because I'd never sold anything. And when we, I remember selling that first piece of business, like jumping up and down in the elevator because I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And that was it. I mean, that was the beginning. From that moment on, I saw opportunity in, in, to be entrepreneurial in, in a whole new way. And even though I, we ended up transitioning, that company has gone on to become something called Ipsy, which is a really huge success story in the YouTube space. And I, I left the company, but I invested. I became an angel investor. And, and you know, it's been an amazing story for me. And I talk about it in Chapter 7 of the book. Even though I didn't you know, end up going full-time or anything, I, my eyes were opened to what it meant to be an advisor or what it meant to be an angel investor. And then I just started doing a lot of that. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Well, well now let's, let's talk about it. Let's define it first. And probably, you know, best practices as an interviewer, I should have done this earlier, but everybody who listens, no, I don't follow best practices. So <laughs> um, what, define a 10% entrepreneur for me. Okay. So a 10% entrepreneur is somebody who spends 10% of their time, money, and energy uh, doing things on the side, investing, advising, and getting involved with entrepreneurial ventures outside of their day job, but while still keeping their day job. So what w- would it be the equivalent of, or you know, could we also call it the side gig mentality? Yeah. So you know, it's funny. When, we, um, when I brought this to, to my publisher and first talked to them about it, they kept on trying to change the name and uh, apologies to, to them because you know, I, I love them and they're fantastic, but they kept on wanting to call the book The Side Hustle, uh-huh. which I thought was, um, it sounded, you know, it's interesting, but it's, it, there's a lot of use of the word around, of the side hustle around the passive income space and the idea of doing you know, a couple hours a week and having a company that generates cash flows and four-hour work week stuff, which is, which is certainly you know, something people do and you know, works for lots of people. This is a little different. This, it's a different approach. And the approach that I recommend is basically that you want to create ownership stakes by leveraging the things that you're really good at. And then, you know, potentially even starting a company that you'll run, but you'll, you won't sort of, the, the, the aspiration isn't to quit your day job and then, you know, live in the island somewhere. The aspiration is to use that as a bridge while keeping your day job into something that, you know, you really love doing and that is exciting for you and teaches you how to be an entrepreneur. So is that bridge you're building to eventually run the company full time yourself? Depends. I mean, it really depends. So for example, uh, there are five types of 10% entrepreneurs and there's the angels, advisors, uh, founders, aficionados, and 110% entrepreneurs. And I can take you through those, but yeah. typically uh, an angel investor is somebody who has some, some cash to invest. You know, they're, they've got some savings and they're looking, they're getting, seeing opportunities to invest in companies. And so they're probably not going to quit their job, but they do want to get involved in investing in things that could generate upside. Advisors are similar to that. Advisors are people who have a particular skill. Say you work as a marketing manager at a company and you meet a startup that needs to figure out their marketing strategy. You will give them some time and then you'll get some shares in return, some sweat equity um, for your time. Then we have founders and founders are people um, the one that, that's my favorite in the book, although I love them all, but my, my favorite is a guy named Luke Holden. And you're, da- you're based in D.C. Luke uh, started a company called Luke's Lobster. Mm. And uh, Luke's Lobster, was a, it's a restaurant chain now, over 20 stores. But the first year of that company's existence, he was working full-time on finance on Wall Street. <laughs> so he, he used this part-time entrepreneurship as a way of figuring out if he liked being an entrepreneur at all, and then figuring out if what he wanted to do actually worked. And then once he 
validated his business model, he left. And so, you know, that, that you can do that or you can, there are plenty of examples of people in, in the book who, I have a lawyer who started a really interesting company that he makes these bracelets that play um, fight songs for, for football teams. And he's a, he's a very successful lawyer and he does this on the side. He generates some interesting income, but he loves his job. He doesn't want to leave. He just sees this as a really fun, great way for him to make some money and learn what it is to be an entrepreneur. Would you say that the goal of, say, a 10% entrepreneur or anyone who kind of buys into this mentality is simply to find the, uh, I don't want to call it a career, but the, the professional path that works for them? Yes, that is exactly right. I mean, there's the, the thing about this is it's, it's, I hate to use the word pragmatic mm-hmm. because pragmatic sounds uninspirational. And I think it's, you know, I think inspiration is really critical to anything you do. But the, the idea here is, you know, we all live in different worlds. We all have different lives that we have to lead. We have different responsibilities to others. And, you know, you may have a couple kids in private school or you may have a family member who needs your support or whatever it is. And you're not going to quit your day job or you may just love your day job. But at the same time, there are things that you want to do. You're not defined by that job description or that title that you, uh, that, that's on your business card and the place that you spend your you know, 40, 50 hours a week. And so this is a way of doing something meaningful to you on the side. And it could turn into something huge, but it may be that it doesn't. And it's okay because you're, you're building something that reflects what you meant, you're meant to be doing in your life. Now let's take a moment for a message from our sponsor this week which is libertarianism.org. Libertarianism.org is the premier resource for learning about the theories, principles, and history of free societies. Libertarianism.org has podcasts, videos, free books, classic reprints, and insights from experts past and present. So yes, this is an odd sponsorship. You might be wondering why we're doing it. And frankly, you know, regardless of your political stance, it can never hurt to be a little more up to speed on what's going out there in your party, in different parties. I'm still learning. I was digging around there trying to figure out what's going on. And they've got some interesting information. Look, the podcast is about learning new things. And I'm going to bet that for most of you, this might be new. So it's libertarianism.org a resource for those of you who are skeptical that there's one way of doing things. Why not err on the side of more freedom? So to learn more about free and open societies, visit libertarianism.org. Now back to our show. Let me ask you something. I have so, I am doing my best to hold back because people want to hear from you. So (laughs) offline, you and I are talking because I'm like exploding inside. But I want to ask you, um, why do you think, you needed to write this book. Why do people need to to hear this, read this, learn this, and have it spelled out? Sure. Well, you know, it's funny. I never really intended to write a book. And I once tried to write a fiction book, and it was very bad. And um, if it ever gets published, I'll probably, they'll take this one off the shelves. Um, but I was writing about it because a lot of my friends, when I started doing this, I started getting a lot of inbound people saying, you know, wow, look at what you're doing. It's, I'd love to do what you're doing. Or I'd have people, I'd meet somebody on a plane that would say, wow, I, you know, I actually do that, but I never really thought about how to be systematic about it. Or, oh, I didn't know I could be an advisor and not just an angel, things like that. So I started getting a lot of inbound kind of requests from people. And so as I did that, I kept notes and I was writing about it and keeping some, some, some sort of general observations. And then 
when I actually decided it was time to write the book, I basically I did like a little bit of a crowdsourcing exercise and I put a Facebook post that said, I want to write about this. And I got so many people from all over the world. I mean, you have people from nine countries on four continents and all kinds of people from, you know, the the doctors and the lawyers to I got a car salesman in Long Island who started a brewery that they're selling the beer at Yankee Stadium. We've got it all. <laughs> and, and so what I what resonated with me and the reason why I wrote this book is because I think that the world that we live in and the world of work is changing so quickly. And I just for me, it's so important to be able to say that I did my part to make sure that at least I showed people what I think is the future of work and made sure that you know we got as many people as possible to sign up to this because yes my experience was that I went through a financial crisis and came to this but there's lots of reasons to choose this and I think once you do it um it it changes your life in such a positive way and it's also really good for the company you work for in your day job and that's the other thing that's so critical is this isn't necessarily I mean you may decide yeah I have a lot of success I'm leaving I mean that's the classic like Steve Jobs kind of story you know he started at his you know Apple when he had a full-time job but there are so many companies that need people who can think like entrepreneurs, whether you're at Goldman Sachs or you're at a mid-sized manufacturing company in Kansas. And the only way to learn how to be an entrepreneur is to actually do it. And so doing this will make you more successful in your day job. And so I think it's a way to bring entrepreneurship back into the traditional workplace as well. As you were talking about that, I was thinking, I remember at uh, over Christmas dinner, I was talking to my brother, who I really respect, and about a, a book that I want to write. And he was like, okay, what's the topic? And I said, I, look, this is just the idea of it, but it's that if you want to differentiate yourself, build something, build anything, and start early. And by build, I don't mean like a car or something. I mean a website, a blog, a podcast, a business, yes. a this, because that calling card is so different and so unique than any almost anything else you can do. And... That's why I love your book so much because, and I asked, why is it needed? I've never, it, it took me 10 years in the professional world to feel the slightest bit of happiness. And it was till I became like, I'll call it a 25% entrepreneur because it's four businesses 25% of the time. <laughs> but that's just the only way I can survive. That's how I work. That's how my body works. You put me in a, the same office for 50 hours, I'll explode. It pretty much happened. And so it's just like, this is a masterful way of putting a name to it and then describing how to do it. So that's why I think you need that your book was needed. Well, <laughs> I appreciate that. That's a, that's a better reason than the one I gave. <laughs> no, I'll no, no. Now on. No, I was just saying I, I love it. So, all right. So, how, what do you say about? Do you ever watch? Have you ever watched the show Shark Tank? Yes. Okay. So uh, I respect those guys, but one of the things that really bothers me, specifically Mark Cuban, is if he gets an entrepreneur up there that isn't like shooting fire out of their eyeballs and has quit their job and lives in a subway station so that they can pour every ounce and dollar into their business, then they're not a true entrepreneur. And that right. drives me nuts. Um, I almost see your book as the anti that. Have you ever thought about that? Yes, I have because I've heard that I have this discussion. I was actually in Morocco two weeks ago for um, a, some work stuff that looking at early stage investment. And I the woman was talking about how hard it is to be an entrepreneur in, in Morocco. So I said, well, do people ever do it on the side part-time? And she gave me the Mark Cuban line. And, you know, I mean, Mark Cuban, you know, I, I, he, he, he's, you know, I have no criticism for him. He's an amazing guy. And I think that 
I get what he's saying. I think for, for many people, um, that's a very good way to go. And, and, and that's certainly a respectable thing to do. But the problem with that approach is it leaves out the rest of us. And entrepreneurship is something that I view is should be open source and it should be something that we can all engage with. And it doesn't have to be that you're building a billion dollar company. You can build something to the size that you want to build it that fits within the life that you want to lead. And so I feel like the people who say that oftentimes are the people who are full-time entrepreneurs. And it's a way of sort of like drawing a circle and saying like, you can't come in here. And I just, you know, I don't accept that. I really like that kind of analogy or that description you gave. Because I've never accepted it, but, you know, I am impressionable. I do look up at people that have millions and billions of dollars. And so, for example, take this podcast. It has been a total, you know, 10% thing for five years and almost no money, although money isn't the real issue. But, um, you know, and then I hear Mark and I, I talk to John, the guy that produces it, and I say, uh, hey, man, maybe we should just, like, quit our jobs and try and do this 100%. And he's like, uh, that's ridiculous. We really like what we're doing and you know, we have cool day jobs. And so it's just been frustrating. Cause then I go, well, I guess it's not very entrepreneurial of us. I think, you know, I think it's way more entrepreneurial to do something that's sustainable and win in the Bingo. long run than to flame out and like end up living on somebody's couch just because you <laughs> thought you had to conform to some, some I mean, it's an easier to you know when you're a billionaire and that's how you made it <laughs> yeah it's, it's obviously easy to say it but and again like you know i respect the guy tremendously he's amazing but just because that worked for him doesn't mean it has to work for everybody yeah and i i do think actually you know as a as an investor he wants somebody who because he's looking for a you know multiple return so if you have somebody who says i mean i'm going to grow the business uh steadily and slowly and it'll be here in 50 years they don't care about that so yeah i guess that's fair well, now that we have we've set this up and people are like, yeah, I, I vibe with this because I think you're going to find way more people that vibe with this than the alternative. But mm -hmm. how do you how do you get over the first hump of like, look, I have a full time job. You know, I'm in my office. My boss expects me to be here. Uh, I have an idea, but I don't even know where to get started. What's step one? OK, so this is really critical because the way that the book is laid out um, I, so I, you know, business books, I don't actually read business books, which is terrible <laughs> because when my first had my, my first meeting with my new editor, um, she asked me what book business books I read and I had to make up, I had like to make them up a little bit. I named a few that I had heard about, which is really terrible because I'm sure they're great books, but <laughs> I just never read them. And so, um, so when I, and so then once you get, I got the deal and I started writing, I didn't read any because I was so afraid of copying anybody. I didn't want to be mm. a plagiarist because that's not, not, not a good thing to be known as. Yeah. So, so my, my book, the way it's laid out, it's probably different than other books, but I hope that it, um, it works better in some ways. And that's the, the first couple chapters are the why. And I think we've just covered that. Be, the, the back half of the book is the how, and it's very, um, it's very meaty. It's, it, there's a lot in there and it's, I try to be very practical and give a lots of examples because I do understand that, you know, you, okay, I've convinced you right now you want to do this, but you know, how do you actually start? And so what I try to do is I explain to you a couple of things and we, and we go through and there's some exercises too, to kind of help you. And then the actual things that I did myself when, you know, well before I had any plans of writing a book, just what I did um, based on trial and error to actually get going. And so, you know, the, the, what I kind of laid out is there's kind of five things you got to think about. 
And it's basically your resources. And those resources are your time, your money, and your intellectual capital. You know, what do you know? What are your, your skills and talents? And then you add to those two more things, which is your network and then the actual plan that you make, the process of making investments. And so that's what you have to start with. You have to start with figuring out for yourself, you know, how much time can you dedicate and how much money can you dedicate? It may be that you have lots of time and zero money. It may be that you have lots of money and zero time. It may be that you have a little bit of each. But once you figure that out, you will know which path of 10% entrepreneurship you can pursue. So for example, if you are, you know, you have no sort of money to invest in side ventures, you're not going to be an angel investor. It just doesn't make sense. If you don't have money, but you have skills, you can consider being an advisor and helping a company get started or being, you know, for example, helping them develop their fundraising materials or everything, you know, from, you know, you think about the guy, the artist who painted the mural in the Facebook offices, David Cho, like he made hundreds of millions of dollars in the stock that he got, he, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't invest any capital. So Wait, I don't all, know that story. Oh, it's amazing. It's uh, the, there's a guy named David Cho who's an an artist who did the graffiti uh, art in the Facebook headquarters, and they paid him in stock. And on IPO, that the stock was worth two hundred million dollars. Get, get out of here. Oh yeah, it's that's, amazing. That's oh, I love that. Okay, sorry to cut you off. <laughs> no, it's 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 a it's a great story because it you know sometimes we think about it and I and I and one thing that was really critical to me in in the book was not just to show a bunch of people who work in McKinsey Consulting or were Wall Streeters or whatever the heck you know worked in big corporate environments. I wanted people who were fashion designers and students and artists and and that, those types of people. And so you know you 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 can think about your resources in all kinds of different ways. But the first step is to just determine what you have. Then you move on to the next step, which is actually figuring out what the heck you want to do. And that's kind of what I call is playing to your strengths. So figuring out what are you good at. And how does that match to what you're excited about doing? And that's a process that, that I take you through. And then once you get to the next part, then the, the final part is actually figuring out how to find opportunities and then determining whether or not they meet your criteria. And so when I got started, I did a couple of things that I think were really impactful for me. Number one was I didn't really know what I was good at. You know, I mean, it sounds a bit silly. I've been working for, you know, a number of years. It but doesn't sound silly. I actually think it's one of the hardest things on this planet to do. But anyway. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad to hear it because yeah. I, was, I was scratching my head. But I was, uh, I, I, I had a friend who, who's a very smart, impressive individual who had uh, written a bio and posted it online, which I think is super smart because you sort of put out there in a very non-braggy way what you're good at. And so I decided to write a bio and go through everything I'd ever done and write it down. And then I, I, I worked on it and I, and I read it over and I, and I talked about it with people. And I was able to distill what I was good at. What were the things that I could bring to the table uh, as a 10% entrepreneur? And so those lit- it's, an, it's a very simple exercise. It probably takes four or five hours to really do it properly. But it gives you a record of what you're good at. And that knowledge allows you to then figure out what do I want to do and then how can I engage with other people to do what I want to do. And so um, you know, once I had that, then the question was how do I find opportunities? And you know, I live in New York City, so it's pretty easy. There's literally like – you know, one event a night about something uh, that you might want to do in terms of entrepreneurship. But there's lots of different ways, no matter where you live, there's angel groups, there are meetups, there's universities, there's all kinds of ways to figure out how to engage with people to find things that you're excited about. Mm -hmm. And so I think, because I agree, I love that is the first step. I, I mean, I've struggled with it. People that listen know it's one of those things that 
to everyone else, what you're good at seems to be fairly obvious, but to right. you, it's, I mean, maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but <laughs> no. And, and it's, a, and that's why it's an interactive process. Like you write your bio and then you show it to people mm-hmm. and you ask them, what do you think of this? Because, because you're right. We're all so hard on ourselves and we're all, you know, we tend to be our worst critic, which is such a shame when, when chances are you have lots to offer the world. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Simon Sinek? Yes, I have. Okay, so we had him on and he um, you know, he really embodies this idea of I mean, start with why, but it's it's finding out what motivates you a little bit and he specifically says you have to go to the people that know you and you have to get some honest answers out of them. That's great. Yeah. yeah I, he's he's fantastic. I think that's completely right. So, once they know, okay, say this person knows, okay, I'm pretty good at this, um, oftentimes the step forward with like, like jumping into this scary world of entrepreneurialism, right? Maybe it's, you have to ask for something or sell something or sell yourself, or, you know, you're thinking, well, if it doesn't end in a career or a million dollars, then why start it? You know, how do you get over that, that big hump of, I figured it out, but now I'm going to do something about it. Well, it's, it's a, that's the, yeah, that's the big challenge. And I'll tell a story. Um, I mentioned Luke Holden from Luke's Lobster. His story to me shows exactly how this can work for somebody. So Luke is this guy um, who was living in New York and working in banking and working all the time. And, and he's from Maine, just like me. So, so uh, he, he, he loves lobsters. And if you're from Maine, you love lobster. It's kind of written, <laughs> except that the thing is, if you're from Maine, you probably can't afford to buy lobster all that often. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I think I had like four in my life until I, until I went to college. So you went to New York and then you bought Yeah. Plenty. And it was like everywhere you go, there's lobster. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, uh, but Luke wanted to find a lobster roll one day cause you know, he's working hard and he wanted a little bit of little slice of home. And he couldn't, they were, you know, all the lobster rolls were 35 bucks and served on white tablecloth. And he just thought, you know, this isn't what we do back home. We eat it outside of the picnic table. And Luke knew because Luke's dad had been a lobsterman and Luke had spent his summers lobstering and his father had a small sort of seafood processing company. And so he had connectivity into this space and he understood the product really, really well. And so what he did was put together a very humble business plan. And he and his dad pulled together $35,000 to open their first store, but he was still working full time. So right. he found a person who had experience in the food industry to come on as his partner. Mm. And so he did it. What he did, if you think about all the pieces that I've just mentioned, he found an industry that really made sense for him. He had the right connections up in Maine. He understood the product. He understood the market. And he did due diligence and he, he ran around town analyzing rents and what was selling where. And you know, he did his homework as well, of course. But then you know, his next problem was, well, I need money to do this. So he found his dad and they put together a very bare bones, but so bare bones that they ran out of money to buy in their budget. They forgot to, to budget for trash cans. So they ended up stealing them from the corner the day they opened. <laughs> Uh, which is that. which is amazing, yeah. and then and then he you know the third thing was he knew he had limited time and he needed more connectivity into the food space, so he went on Craigslist, advertised. I think he met he had many many I mean hundreds of resumes or something. He met with twenty of those people, ended up hiring a partner who's still his partner today. Um, this partner could work on it full time, and now you know this was a business that paid back the entire investment in less than a month. And now they have over 20 stores, and this is like a really, a really big business. I mean, he's 
he's he's now got a food processing plant. He's got his, all these things lined up. So the point being is that Luke did it in a very gradual way, but he every decision he made he wasn't trying to sort of throw everything into it and take the huge risk of the world. He did things in a very kind of methodical and pragmatic way. And look where he is today. So that's what I tell people to do is nothing should feel scary. I mean, yes, entrepreneurship is about taking risk, but you want to stay close to home and do things in a, that, that actually that where you will position yourself for success with each decision you make. Mm-hmm. And you know what jumps out to me about that? Having actually looked into opening my own food truck and going oh. through pretty much exactly what you, you, you just spelled out. Um, except I realized, you know what, like I'm not super passionate about it. Even if it takes off, like I think I'll find myself elsewhere. But, but the thing that it highlights is when you have that job and you have that security, the things that take a long time, call it permitting or getting in my case, the truck ready, but in his case, the, the, the actual establishment ready or getting sourcing done when you have a full-time job, you're like, okay, this is fun. This is something I can look forward to outside of work where if you are a full-time entrepreneur and it's one of the first things that you kind of mention in like the book summary and all that is it's a, it's a slog. It's a grind. It's like a, you're clawing for your life. And I mean, especially in his case, he got to the same place with probably a, a much lower blood pressure. That's exactly right. I always think think about this article I read in the New York Times about this lawyer, and she really wanted to open a bakery to sell. She was Greek or something, and her grandmother had this amazing Greek pastry. So she did it. She quit her job, took her savings, started this bakery. A year and a half later, she she hated it. She was working 18 hours a day. She had all these like sores from all the cuts and the and the burns from the oven. She was making a fraction of what she had made before. And it's pretty sad to quit your job you know, at the law firm to do this thing you're supposed to love and then sit there in your bakery wishing you were back at the law firm. I mean, that is like, that is some, that's some dark place to be. Yeah, actually, it's such, such a good point. And it's kind of what you talk about is almost testing the entrepreneurial waters. I mean, you have to be real with yourself in that, look, being an entrepreneur isn't the best thing ever. It's just the best thing for some people. And I think in today's world, it's getting put on this pedestal that's not necessarily warranted if it's not your thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I call that entrepreneurship ink. And it's this uh-huh. idea of, you know, it's, I, I, I've gone to these demo days and I, and I love them and I love entrepreneurs and I don't mean to, to pick on them a little here. But, you know, having the startup T-shirt and all the stickers in your laptop, I mean, it's great. But like that, that fun stuff lasts for about five minutes. And then when you're working really hard and you're struggling, you know, it, it's not for everybody living the struggle as an entrepreneur. It's for some people. And, and I respect that tremendously, but that doesn't mean the rest of us shouldn't be able to engage in a different way. Absolutely. Well, Patrick, you know, as we've been talking about entrepreneurialism and all that, I got to put in a little sales pitch here. We're going to have you, you're, you're going to be a guest on one of our uh, mastermind webinars. Yes. In the in the near future. I think we set up a date. Um, I will let the audience know. But I'm, I'm saying that because we're going to get a chance to walk through even a little bit more, you know, for those interested in this, how to do it. Like, essentially, you can you can walk them through a little bit in this uh, in this webinar. Right. Well, most definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's very clear. So to the listeners out there, I mean, this is the kind of stuff we're going to be doing. And 
Uh, you know, we have our first one on March 24th. It's free. So uh, sign up at the newsletter and then we'll kind of funnel you into this and you'll get to hear more from Patrick. But uh, in the meantime, the, the book is, you know, is going to be out at this time, uh, The 10% Entrepreneur, and it goes through all of it as well. And as you said, with some meat on it, with some, some actionable items. Right. Well, very cool. Patrick, thank you so much. This is fun. Thanks so much. It was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Take care of yourself. All right. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Patrick McGinnis. Patrick's book, The 10% Entrepreneur, Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job, can be found online at Amazon through the convenient Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through that link comes to no cost to you and gives the show a nice little kickback. It helps keep the lights on and everything running behind the scenes. If you'd like to reach out to the show, please send us an email to smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. There's some big news on the mastermind front, so if you haven't signed up for our newsletter, please head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up over there. I have a huge favor to ask of everyone. If you haven't already, please, please, please head over to iTunes, leave a rating, review, and comment over there. That two or three minutes that it'll take you to leave a review definitely means more to us than you truly know. It really, really does help out the show. If you could head over there today and do that, we would greatly appreciate it. We've got some awesome episodes coming up, so make sure you stay tuned by heading over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, and we will see you all next week. Thank you again to our sponsor, libertarianism.org. There are podcasts, videos, free books, classic reprints, and insights from experts past and present. Learn more about free and open societies at libertarianism.org.